Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners. I'm sure that many of you are joining April and I in the joy of getting back out into the world and into museums. I mean, I guess this might have been happening for a while, but I certainly am doing it a little bit more and more. Um, But unlike New York, April, as you know, my home state of New Mexico does not have an ever-rotating roster of fashion and dress-related exhibitions. So it should come as no surprise to our listeners that I was going to jump at the chance to feature a wonderful exhibition that I actually got to see in person recently in Albuquerque at the Albuquerque Museum of Art. And it's entitled Indelible Blue Indigo Across the Globe. And it's on view until April 24th. And as the exhibition title suggests, the exhibit really speaks to the ubiquity of indigo across the globe. It is a dye, a color, and a plant found in any number of cultures from throughout history and around the world. And the exhibit traces the story of indigo geographically and across time, juxtaposing works by contemporary artists with historical objects from the museum's collection, from a 19th century Japanese shishiko farmer's coat to a North American Dine chief's blanket to the works of artists like Laura Anderson Barbata and Roland Ricketts, the exhibit beautifully demonstrates the myriad of ways that indigo has been used and imbued with a multifaceted usages and meanings. Putting historical and contemporary objects and artists into conversation serves as a potent reminder of the profound connections that can be made when we blur the lines between the past and the present. And what better guest to speak to that very topic than the exhibition's co-curators, and that is the Albuquerque Museum's curator of art, Josie Lopez, and curator of history, Leslie Kim. A very warm welcome to you both to Dressed. Leslie and Josie, welcome to Dressed. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm so excited to talk to both of you. I'm so excited to talk about this exhibition. I mean, it is in my hometown, so it's always nice when I can go to exhibitions in person and see them. It's such a beautiful exhibition. Congratulations, first and foremost. Thank you. So before we learn all about this wonderful exhibit, we're going to dive in in a minute, but I'm hoping you can both just kind of start off with a basic introduction to Indigo. You know, I think we all think we know what indigo is, but maybe we have different ideas. It's kind of this multifaceted, it can be a color, a plant, a dye. What is it and how is it produced? So when we started this project, we consulted with uh, several different individuals, including artists, the filmmaker Mary Lance, who did a beautiful documentary about indigo called uh, Blue Alchemy. And we took a note on her process and thinking about how she explored indigo across the globe. And one of the things that she really did in her process is that she actually went to these different countries and met with artists and artisans and people who have been making indigo for a very long time, many of them carrying on traditions that are thousands of years old. 
And so one of the first things that we had to dive into was this exact question, you know, what is indigo? And what we found in a lot of our research and thinking and reading, there was also an incredible exhibition at the British Museum of Art that had uh, informed a lot of the research that we were doing as well. And we discovered that there are actually a ton of varieties of indigo. There are so many that are out there, but there really are only a few that are used to make dye. And so the plant has been cultivated all over the world in places like India and China and Japan and also in the Americas. And so one of the things that we sort of were captivated by was this quest to kind of find the originating point of indigo. And what we learned is that because there are so many varieties, it has this deep and long history in all of these places. But one of the things that Leslie discovered actually, and well, all of us were reading, uh, you know, at this time, but they recently discovered that one of the oldest samples of indigo being used as a dye is a little over 6,000 years ago Wow! in Peru. And so that kind of flips the whole history of the way that this plant has been looked at and studied and the way that the dye made from the plant has been looked at and studied historically. So it's really fun as curators when we jump into a project and we have this idea of the historical significance and the historical information. And then we have a discovery like this that kind of flips it on his head. And so we have this really interesting moment where we realize that it's not necessarily a race to figure out where it originated, but understanding that it originated across the globe simultaneously in so many different places over literally, you know, thousands of years. And so that was kind of the, the fascinating underpinning of that particular component related specifically to the plant. So the production of the blue dye that comes from the plant is another element of the history that we kind of jumped into and explored. And as varied as the plant is, so are the methods and uses of the blue dye that is derived from that plant. And it's, it's very different in different parts of the world and at different times. In this particular exhibition, and I'll turn it over to Leslie in a minute to talk a little bit about how the plant is processed into a dye. But one of the things that, that was really interesting and fascinating is thinking about the difference between uh, indigo dye that's synthetic and one that is natural. And we tried to focus on the artists who were utilizing the natural dye versus the synthetic dyes that you see used in the commercial creation of blue jeans, for example, um, or other kind of fast fashion ways of creating clothing. And so what you'll see in our exhibition is much more of a focus on the, on the natural dye as opposed to, to some of those synthetic dyes that are used. Absolutely. And Leslie, do you want to speak a little bit to the process? Yeah, as Josie was just saying, Natural processing uh, goes back thousands of years. In fact, that first discovery in Huaca Prieta, we don't necessarily know how they were processing that. But, you know, even the Indus Valley uh, in India had 
indigo and and they were processing it uh, naturally maybe as long ago as 3000 BCE. So we're talking thousands of years. And it wasn't until the discovery of coal tar during the Industrial Revolution in Britain that they discovered that that could be used for synthetic dye, um, which of course started with darker, with blacks and darker dyes in the 1850s, 1860s. And synthetic dye then didn't really become a thing. It's synthetic indigo until 1880s or so, maybe even closer to 1900. So up to that point, there were three basic ways of processing the indigo. And so the easiest way to do it was through um, vats. And this had to be done during the harvest period. They would add the plant to a vat along with either ash water or urine, something to help make the vat more alkaline and to begin some sort of fermentation process, which would reduce the oxygen in the vat. But then there, as, and then we see also that there's a composting method and that was used more commonly in Europe, especially in the processing of woad, but it's still used today um, in Japan and West Africa. And that's basically the leaves are composted and then dried to produce sort of a transportable or storable leaf mass that can be then added again to a dye vat. And then the other well-known processing was to make indigo cakes. And this has the advantage of being highly transportable and we see this very commonly throughout uh, colonial societies because they would cut the leaves and add them to water and let them ferment for about 12 hours. And then at that point, the liquid would be drained and mixed with a slaked lime and then vigorously aerated until the indigo would form. Then the indigo, the precipitates would separate and sink to the bottom of the vat and then you could make a paste that could be scooped out and made into these cakes. So colonial plantations throughout the Americas and India in particular, under British direction, this was done in huge tanks. So that's kind of a, a little overview about the processing of natural indigo. But to add to that, um, you know, when Leslie talks about the indigo having to be, you know, vigorously you know, worked, it was human bodies that were doing that work. And so it's the really one of the key themes and elements that we were looking at in, in as we created various uh, narratives through this exhibition was really exploring how workers and humans became the vehicle through which this particular blue dye was processed. So there's this beautiful juxtaposition between the really challenging history of the product that's made from this plant and the ultimate beauty that it has represented across time and across place. Yeah, and that's something I really appreciated about this exhibition because you really shouldn't talk about indigo without um, talking about this really complicated history. And I think you all did it in a really thoughtful way and one that we're going to talk about a little bit later on in our conversation. But first, I want to talk about how the exhibition's organized 
The objects featured in it encapsulate, as you've attested to, this broad geographical survey of indigo's use around the world and throughout history. So you have this beautiful range of historical objects juxtaposed next to contemporary works of art. Can you introduce our listeners to the exhibition and tell us why this juxtaposition of such a diverse offerings of indigo objects was important to your message? Yeah, so as you point out, there's a real dedication on our part to incorporate not only the historical context, but also focus on specific contemporary works of art that are in the exhibition. A real key component in our process was identifying artists who were utilizing indigo in a way that demonstrated that it was a material that was integral to their art making process. So, you know, there are a lot of artists who've dabbled with indigo, who've, you know, done a few things here and there. But most of the artists that you see here, for many of them, indigo is practically a way of life. And so there were these amazing stories and connections. So one of them is one of the first artists that we started talking to um, was Roland Ricketts, who works and teaches in Indiana and who also grows his own indigo. He and his wife, Chinami Ricketts, both have trained and studied in Japan for many years. So their dye making derives from that traditional Japanese approach. But he's been growing indigo for a long time. And we also discovered that there's a couple of folks, an artist named Scott Sutton, who lives in Taos now and has been growing indigo in Taos. He previously was growing indigo in Seattle and in Portland area. And then we have another artist who's also Japanese who lives um, in, who lived in the same area in New Scott. So the, the tie between all of these artists is that Scott actually got the seeds that he used to grow indigo from Roland Ricketts. And those seeds grew the indigo that was in, in Portland that was then shared with you know, the other artists, including the piece that, that reflects on uh, Fukushima in Japan. And so when you see how these interconnected relationships have developed all around this one amazing material, it's fascinating. And so each of the artworks, if you look at Roland Ricketts' piece and the watershed piece that Scott Sutton incorporated and the work that Yukio Kawano created, they're all connected by the same DNA. Uh, if you think about a plant as having this, this DNA that transcends time and place, but it also transcends the element of making art. And so there's just one example of the many ties and intersections that we discovered just in the process of talking to and researching and finding the artists who were doing this kind of work in a way that was integral uh, to their practice and also to their view of, you, of this particular material and how it develops in the world. Another key strand on the art side that we found were the connections between Africa and some of the artists that were utilizing traditional African patterns within their works. And that tied together a couple of the works that were in the exhibition in a really interesting way that, again, linked it to a broader history, a broader tradition, but brought it into the contemporary moment and explored issues that we're grappling with in the current moment as well. 
Yeah, and that's something we really love to explore on dress are these threads between our history and our shared histories and then the present, right? How history is still relevant in so many incredible ways and incarnations. The work of Laura Anderson Barbatha opens this exhibition. It's also the images you're seeing most associated with this exhibition because it's such a visually stunning and arresting display of costumes and textiles used by this contemporary artist and her collaborators in what is an ongoing project entitled Intervention Indigo. Can you tell us about the significance of Indigo to this artist and her work and why you wanted these to be the first objects that visitors encountered and engaged with upon entering the exhibition? So Laura Barbata Anderson's work uh, really is something that is part of a larger body of work that she's been creating for a very long time. A couple of the key elements of it that really interested me was looking at how she was using traditional African tie-dye techniques to create some of these really large, beautiful, bold And they're not, they're characters, right? We're not going to call them costumes. Like she literally refers to them as characters and they have a life of their own and they tell a story. Um, And that story is directly connected to Trinidad and also the Afro-Mexicano history of her own country. She she lives both in Mexico and in, in the United States. And so She's exploring this history that has been ignored for a very long time. It's only recently that you start to see the unpacking of the Afro-Mexicano history that exists, especially in places like Veracruz in Mexico. And so what you see is that she's created these characters that are telling the story through a performative aspect of the works themselves. And so in the same way that you could think about, you know, Nick Cave sound suits, for example, these objects were not necessarily intended to be in a static display in a gallery. They were originally performed in Mexico City as well as in Brooklyn, New York. And so the other aspect to this that creates this multivalent narrative So she's looking at Afro-Mexicanidad. She's looking at this traditional African method of creating the work itself, the physicality of the dye and the blue and the patterns and the tie-dye process. But then the third element that comes into this is the way in which these performed pieces or interventions, as she calls them, were actually a way to acknowledge and to bring attention to the families who were also victims of police violence when their loved ones experienced that violence. And so there's a very deep political message that's also folded into that history and into that narrative that you see playing out. And I think that was one of the reasons why it was important to me for this work to be the introduction to the exhibition. Because those are kind of the, the key threads right, that we really develop throughout the exhibition. The connection between history and the current moment, the exploration of of tradition as well, and then also bringing in a more complex view of what the political messages are that each of these artists are grappling with when you're talking about a material like Indigo 
that's also embedded in this history of colonialism and slavery and, and bringing all of those key components together. So it right off the bat with Laura's work, we're preparing the viewer, the visitor to have in, the um, engagement with this experience that's going to unpack each of those levels of thinking about how this particular material enables us to tell all those stories in a complex and rich way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what I love about this subject matter that I study is that it's, you know, any one of these little elements that we might dismiss as being, you know, oh, it's just a dye. It's like, no, this dye is a lens to explore all of these beautiful and complex histories and and stories and, and really incredible ways as you've exhibited in this exhibition. So Indigo's ubiquity around the world means it's taken on any numbers of meanings and usages. And that changes depending on the people who are using it at any given place and moment in history. And I actually think um, talking about Laura's work is a great segue to talk about the work of another artist featured in the exhibition, and that's Gasali Ariemo. Uh, can you please introduce us to this artist's work and his relationship to Indigo? Yeah, and you'll see that in the exhibition, Gasali's work is actually right alongside Laura's. And part of that is because both artists are engaging with the traditional tie-dye methods of indigo. And we do describe and talk about specifically that, that method that Gasali uses. And it was fantastic getting to meet him. And he's, he's done, he'll be doing a workshop at the museum. But he also really shared with us sort of his process. And that's embedded in what he does. Like he cares about educating people about the work and the material and the traditions. And when he was here for our exhibition opening, for him, he talked about indigo as being medicine, as being love, as being tradition, as being a life way. And that is something that really envelops everything that he does. And this this one material has really defined, you know, his, his approach to how he wants to be in the world and how he wants to share his culture and how he wants to share these traditions. And so it's fascinating that you have someone like Gasali, who in many museum settings would be considered, you know, a craftsman or an artisan. But in this case, we're, we're actually raising another question. It's like, what are the lines between fine art and craft. And I think indigo is just the perfect material to kind of raise that question. And I'm sure that you think about this a lot in talking about fashion. What are those boundaries between what we make and how we make it and how it gets classified as an artwork or something that's craft? And so we wanted to, to blur that line. And that was one of the reasons why we brought Gasali's work in. And it ends up being a perfectly matched comparison, a contrast piece with someone's artwork like Laura's that is very much about a very specific political approach to making her artwork. And I think in an interesting way, each one of them are doing the work of advancing uh, these conversations around diversity and empathy and how we create that through the, the, the projects that we do just in a very different way. And I think that's also what lends to the beauty of this exhibition is that we we're not afraid to tell the challenging histories and the challenging stories, but at the same time, we're also willing to celebrate the tradition and beauty of, of what this material has brought globally for centuries. Yeah. And, and we've spoken of, 
about a couple different places now, including Japan, we alluded to earlier. I'd love if we can talk about some of the examples of historical and contemporary works from Japan featured in the exhibition. Can you both speak to the significance of indigo to Japan and maybe highlight a few of the objects featured in this exhibition for our listeners? So in Japan, interestingly, the indigo initially was worked by women. It was considered women's work. They did the dyeing of the material. And then as time evolved, maybe around the 12th century, men started to do it, to take over that that more. But the indigo in Japan was typically used and continues to be used in everyday objects. Although I think we should note that the samurai also used it um, and they were, uh, you know, of a higher status. Indigo was also valued for its ability to repel insects. And so we see it used throughout society, but often in everyday objects. So we have two interesting objects in the exhibit. We have um, a farmer's coat that is layers of different indigo dyed materials that are stitched together. You see them stitched with this white stitching and it's a very thick coat and was used in the fields, right? And it, uh, and it was insulated and warm. But we also have a futon cover that's really interesting to kind of get up close to and look at because you can see the, the panels are somewhat more narrow. That was constricted by the size of the loom. And actually, that was sort of the standard size of a loom used in Japan. And then each panel would be stitched together. So it's, it's a really interesting piece to look at when you look at the cranes and you can sort of see in some of the other symbols in it, you can see that they're not stitched perfectly. But I think that further alludes to that this would have been sort of an everyday object that was used in the home. It wasn't something that was so perfect that would have been hung over um, a mantle or something. This was an everyday object. So those are a couple of the sort of historical and everyday objects from Japan in the exhibit. Yeah, and something I really love that's present throughout the exhibition is you really get to see how indigo is used as like this backdrop to create these stunning visual patterns. So in the sashiko coat that you're talking about, you have all these little white, finely hand-done stitches that just pop against the indigo. And you also see that in all of the garments featured in Laura's section as well. It just provides a stunning backdrop for these um I think they're both resist dyed textiles and this beautiful visual feast for us to really enjoy. We think so too. (laughs) I I think that continuing on that discussion of the juxtaposition of the white with the blue is very much a part of the way that Japanese artists were incorporating the concept of no tan, which is balance. And so if you look at the work by Shindo, uh, Roland Ricketts, Chinami Ricketts, all of them are basically creating work in the traditional methods of Japanese indigo dyeing. But at the same time, they're very, very thoughtful about how they're creating balance within the works themselves. And so Shindo, one of the quotes that we incorporated into our are thinking about this exhibition, he talked about how the white is just as important as the blue. 
because if you don't have that balance, then you're not actually reaching, you know, that aesthetic goal, which is very much embedded in Japanese aesthetics, you know, not even just in indigo, but in general, if you're looking at Japanese woodblock prints, um, you know, the concept of balance is really important. And so I think that's why you're, you know, you're experiencing the garments and the other fiber works that are in the exhibition in the way that you are, and you're noticing that, but it's intentional. It's not something that was, especially for the Japanese artists, you know, it was not derived on accident. It's really an intentional part of their their aesthetic approach to making the work. And there's a really wonderful indigo angel that is a framed piece. It's a it's made of a, a linen fiber paper, but Shindo makes this indigo angel every year and he has it in his studio. And he actually, the one that's in our exhibition is the one that he gave Mary Lance when she came to visit him in Japan. And so even in this traditional method of Japanese dyeing, in the same way that Gasali had that beautiful spirit of wanting to share his traditions, uh, you can say the same for Shindo, and that he was he's willing to invite people into his studio, even though he's he's much older now. Um, he still wants to share his traditions, his approach to making the indigo dye, and and spreading that around the world. And I think that generosity of spirit is also what shines through the different works of art that are in this exhibition. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that piece because that has to be one of my favorite in the entire exhibition. It's just this tiny little, I think, indigo god in a kimono shape. And then you read the didactic and it says that he creates them every year to bring luck to his dying. And he's not alone. He's not the only artist who does that. So it's just such a beautiful testament to the power and meaning behind indigo. There is a significant portion of the exhibition dedicated to the indigo tradition of New Mexico, which is particularly apt. It is, you know, the exhibition is in Albuquerque. I might be a little biased being a New Mexican, but New Mexico has this incredibly rich and diverse textile tradition and heritage. It spans centuries, thousands of thousands of years. It spans cultures. I would love if you could talk a little bit about how indigo made its way to New Mexico and in what ways it was incorporated into the weaving specifically of various indigenous groups, including the Pueblo and Diné cultures. So indigo came to the Americas, well, as we started the whole discussion at the beginning of the podcast, it was discovered in Huaca Prieta, Peru, over 6,000 years ago. So we know that indigenous peoples in the Americas were using indigo thousands and thousands of years ago. And we know that indigo was also cultivated in places like Oaxaca, Guatemala, different areas of the Americas. When the Spanish arrived, it was an important dye. The Franciscan friars wore indigo dyed robes. So during the mission period of New Mexico, in the 1700s, we'll find a lot of indigo then. But indigo was also traveling up and down the Camino Real from Mexico City to north of Santa Fe throughout the colonial period. And that indigo could have come from as far away as Asia through the Manila galleons, which would have been shipped to Mexico City and come up. But it was likely coming from all sorts of places. Uh, over time, we see that 
indigo works its way into a variety of textiles, as you've noted, among the Pueblo peoples and also the Diné, and is still used today. So there's several compelling uh, textiles and pieces of art in the section on New Mexico. We have a pretty striking Saltillo Serape that's actually part of the Albuquerque Museum's uh, collection. It was brought to the Bosque Redondo camp during the Navajo incarceration at Fort Sumner in New Mexico in the 1860s. And the Diné weavers used indigo and maybe even picked up some of their, well, did pick up some of their weaving techniques from the Puebloans who had been here using it. But we have two very striking Diné pieces in the exhibit. That's one of them. It's an unusual poncho style Navajo serape. And when you come around the corner, the colors just really pop. It's a lot of cochineal and indigo, and it is large and striking. In front of that, we also have on loan from Maxwell Museum um, at UNM, we have a first phase chief's blanket, which is a very interesting piece. I'm sure you and your listeners already know that the chief's blanket, while, while it's called a chief's blanket, was not worn by chiefs so much here in New Mexico, but the Plains chiefs. So the, the Plains Indians sort of give it this name and it becomes sort of a prestige garment among the Plains Indians. We also have a beautiful Puebloan manta in the exhibit at Zuni. And that's a pretty special piece. Again, you'd want to see it in person, but once you get right up on it, it has an over-dyed dark field in the middle. And then either side, the top and bottom have these rich indigo bands. Um, and when you get right up onto the textile, you can see a double twill diamond pattern. That's pretty unusual to see. It's a, it's a very finely done piece and the weaving is exceptional. So those are two of the, or three of the textiles in there. We also have some retablos done by Charlie Carrillo, who's a local Santero. And he sources his indigo from Oaxaca. His indigo comes in cake form, or I'm sorry, pow well, powder and cake. He uses both, I believe. He mixes that with his pigments and then paints with it. So um, those are some of the interesting items over in that section. And when you say santeros, you mean saints. So we have a, a very long tradition in New Mexico in the Spanish culture of painting and carving saints. And so he paints different depictions of saints using, I'm guessing, all natural pigments? Yes, as much as possible. He sources most of those pigments locally and then grinds. Some of them he grinds, some of them he buys ground. So the stuff from Oaxaca, he's not grinding himself, for example. Um, and then he'll mix that into his pigments and paint with them. Yeah. Yeah, this is a beautiful section. Like I said, I might be a little biased, but um, I really appreciated the attention you all gave to New Mexico. Something I also really appreciate about this exhibition is the attention paid to the environmental and ethical impact of indigo cultivation, production, and trade. Our listeners will be familiar with the relationship between indigo, slavery, and colonialism. We did a recent episode on the PBS documentary, Riveted, the History of Blue Jeans, but maybe less familiar with its worldwide implications, which is something you address in this exhibit. Can you tell us a little bit more about indigo as it relates to the legacy of colonialism? 
Sure. And I think the perfect installation to really bring to light that history, and we could talk about India and the Indigo Revolt as well. But I think the piece for me that is contemporary, that kind of delves into that history in the Americas, is Nikisha Breeze's um, installation work. And what she created was an altar that really is meant to shine a light on the, the history of Indigo, particularly in the southern part of the United States and its connection to slavery. And so her work, her altarpiece, basically consists of a sculptural installation that is a stack of blue jeans that creates almost like a tower that's basically about the size of a body. And so when you approach this altar, you're negotiating it on the human scale. And at the top of this stack of blue jeans, you actually see a pair of hands that have been dyed blue, as well as a pair of legs that have been dyed blue. And so again, it's an homage to the bodies that had to work to create the blue dye itself. And then at the bottom of the altarpiece, it's surrounded by a white base of material that also embedded in there is cotton. And so it's connecting that history of indigo plantations to also cotton as a commodity that was grown and processed as a result of and because of the cheap labor or the free labor provided by enslaved peoples. And so what's fascinating about it is that we oftentimes are enamored by this beautiful blue but we don't necessarily realize that in the United States in particular, that there were these plantations, that indigo is a part of the story of, of enslaved peoples. And, and what did that mean? And how did that impact, um, you know, right there with tobacco and cotton, indigo and sugar, you know, indigo was one of the commodities that was produced during that time period. And so, you know, Nikisha's piece really delves into that in terms of the, the colonial component of it. I think the environmental and ethical impact is a little bit different. Yes, we see this across plantations in America, but also across the British Empire, especially in India. Leslie, do you want to talk a little bit about the Indigo Revolt of the mid-19th century? Yeah, so I, I think to really understand the colonialism, we have to recognize that Indigo is one way the British got so wealthy, that indigo really was a desirable commodity in Europe and throughout the world. And the British were brokers in all of that in the early 18th century. As the British seize control of India, they require Indians to plant more and more and more indigo, often at, at the cost of not planting food crops. And this becomes taxing and difficult in addition to actual money tax that the British levy on indigo farmers in India. And in 1859, it reaches this critical state in which the indigo farmers revolted against the British planters and the crown. And it turns into a violent event. It wasn't supposed to. It, it started out as sort of a peaceful uh, movement, but some farmers decided to burn their crops and, and it turned very violent against people as well. 
the Indigo Revolt resolves by 1860, but I think what we see evolve in that moment is sort of foments this nationalism among the Bengali people and um, will sort of provide an impetus for Gandhi moving forward in the 20th century as he begins a campaign of nonviolence against British control and rule over India. And uh, we had read that Gandhi had taken some of that inspiration from visiting indigo farmers in the 20th century. So this feeling of like needing to control their own fate and decide what they're planting and how they're sort of their autonomy and running themselves. So um, indigo, you can't talk about indigo and India without uh, really thinking about the indigo revolt. And obviously, as your listeners, I'm sure already know, the Indians have um, produced beautiful indigo textiles for thousands of years and have been responsive to market forces. We we weren't able to put our hands on any chintz, but some of the most beautiful chintz patterns come out of India and some of the other techniques, Ajrak block printing and certain weaving techniques we do have on display in the exhibit. We have two saris in the exhibit. One is displayed in its well, it's full length doubled over. So a typical sari is six yards in length. We have one displayed, uh, it's doubled over, but you can see uh, the very fine weave. That one comes from Kota, uh, which they're known for having, um, traditionally they would put uh, one silk thread in for every six to nine cotton in the weft. And so you can sort of see some of this, that ours is a more modern piece. So it's probably more likely that it's all cotton, um, but you can see where they put it in the warp. But the way they do the weft, you can see sort of this waffled pattern and you can really see that in that beautiful sari. And then we have an, another sari to the right that has beautiful gold thread in it um, and it's wrapped. And then we also have a chemise that you can see the Ajrak printing very clearly. So these are some of the techniques and textiles that come out of India that we celebrate for their indigo. Yeah, and I love this section too because those saris are displayed between like the Japanese sashiko coat and then the Japanese futons off to the right. And so the way the exhibition's laid out is you really get this visual conversation happening between not just these objects, but obviously these objects that are coming from all around the world and these different incarnations of indigo and the way it's utilized in similar but different ways. It's just such a beautiful exhibition. So in closing, I want to talk, um, I just have one or two more questions, but we know that indigo infiltrates the market once the synthetic version comes out in the 1880s. And it's really dominated the market ever since. If you look at blue jeans, for instance, billions and billions of blue jeans all using synthetic dyes. But there are still ethical manufacturers of natural indigo operating today. And that was something I just love to learn about in the exhibit. Can you introduce us to a few of these individuals and companies featured in the exhibition that are really keeping this incredible tradition alive? One of the things that we really discovered, and I've already mentioned a little bit with, you know, Scott Sutton, who's growing indigo up in northern New Mexico, Roland um, and Chinami Ricketts, who are doing some indigo growing in, in Indiana. There's a wonderful organization called Stony Creek Colors, 
That's another uh, group that's really part of this entire dialogue around revitalizing the use of natural indigo dyes. And so you do kind of see these early traditions of utilizing natural indigo dyes. And then, of course, the synthetic dyes really take over, as you've pointed out. But now we do see a resurgence. And, you know, for example, with Stony Creek Colors, I think that they've been working with Patagonia, you know, to try to figure out a way to infuse the fashion market with a much more environmentally friendly approach to to utilizing dyes. However, I think before you get to the solution, we have to acknowledge the problem, right? And so one of the things that I think it's really amazing about the work that Yukio Kawano did, um, also Roland Ricketts piece, which is this incredible large-scale installation that incorporates sound, but it's also really reflecting on, when you look at it, it, it kind of emulates a grain silo that you would see somewhere in the Midwest. But what it's commenting on is the process of growing and cultivating this particular plant. And you'll also see that on two of the adjacent walls, along with Roland's installation, which is basically uh, several rectangular panels of indigo that are sewn together to create this um, circular environment or spiral environment that you walk through that's surrounded by the plant itself. And so you have the indigo plant that you get to engage with and encounter in the exhibition, along with the sound component. And the sound component are recordings that you would hear, you know, basically in the exact place where this indigo was grown. And so I think that having this awareness of the interconnectedness between the plant and the people who are creating it and cultivating it and the way that they use it is a key way to demonstrate how important it is to be um, aware of the of, of the impacts of the synthetic dyes, but also the importance of cultivating the relationships that we have with each other and with the land. And so I think the other work that also does that really in a in a much more stark way is Yukio Kawano's piece, which reflects on these blue bags that were used to store the contaminated earth that was being remediated um, in Japan as a result of the Fukushima spill. And so, or the Fukushima event, it's not even a spill, it's an event. She's commenting on how this this earth, you know, is really something, This this how can we think about natural plants. Um, there are a couple of artists that we talked to that we wanted to include in this exhibition that were utilizing natural materials to do this kind of earth remediation. Unfortunately, a lot of that work has been done around mushrooms and using those that kind of material to remediate the earth. So we, Yukio, you know, really wanted to get into this discussion around, you know, is it possible that indigo could be one of those plants that help us to to heal the earth, essentially. And so, you know, she kind of takes the discussion onto that level of, of what are the environmental impacts, where are we now, and how can we look to the future in a way that we can not try to essentially use the natural world, but to live with it and among it and be part of it, as opposed to seeing it as more of a, a material or a commodity or a tool even that is here for us to use. It becomes more of an integrated existence with the materials. 
And I think that's fascinating to think about in the context of your discussion of fashion. You know, how do our choices that we make about what we wear or what we buy impact some of these discussions that are being had on a very real level um, in, in projects like this? And I think that was the element for me as a curator that really was powerful the way in which artists are engaging with these conversations in a very deep and very real way, and then bringing that out in the works that they produce. Absolutely. And on that note, I think I'm going to end this conversation because I think you've left us with a really profound insights into this exhibition that's really provoking a lot more conversations, right, moving forward and leaves us with a lot of things to think about and contemplate. So thank you both so much for being here. This has been a wonderful uh, insight into this exhibition. Thank you. Lots of fun to be here with you. Thank you, Josie. Thank you, Leslie. You have both left us all with a lot of food or perhaps die for thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they both did an incredible job with this exhibit. And I really appreciated the fact that they did not shy away from Indigo's incredibly complex and controversial past. And then to show the ways that so many contemporary artists are engaging with these histories to spark contemporary conversation really is such a wonderful exhibit. And just wait until you see the work of Laura Anderson Barbata dress listeners. It is absolutely incredible. And I was so pleased to learn about all of these ethical manufacturers of natural indigo dye that are operating today. We are, of course, here on Dressed, very interested and concerned with the seismic and detrimental impact of the fashion industry on the environment. And that absolutely extends to the synthetic clothing dye that is used in our products that is really poisoning our water supplies. And as the exhibit reminds us, quote, in our current world where over 1 billion pairs of blue jeans are produced annually, working with purely plant-based products requires a conscious dedication, end quote. And it was very inspiring to learn about the work of Sarah Bellos' company, Stony Creek Colors, that Josie referenced. They work with Wrangler, Lucky Brand, and Patagonia. And I'd actually really love to get her on the show. So stay tuned. Oh, that would be super fun. Also, if you happen to be in Albuquerque, you have until April 24th to check out Indelible Blue Indigo Across the World. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the past, present, and future of Indigo in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll find images accompanying each week's episodes. And if you have a moment and you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.